I, uh, I saw somebody ask a really interesting question online this week, and it got me thinking about my own life. That the, the question they asked, and you can think about this for yourself too, the question they asked was this. What's the weirdest thing that you believed was true when you were a kid? Right, like you start to think back. Some of the stuff that you just thought the, about how the world works as a kid, and it's just, so I was reading through some of the responses. Somebody had said, I believe that when the telephone rang and you were talking to somebody on the other end of the phone, that they had been made really small and got inside the phone, and that's why you could talk to them. And they, they went on to say they were always super disappointed that they were the one, never the one that the phone elected to shrink down and to make really small. Um, somebody else said, I thought that parents would choose what gender they want their baby to be and then dress them in blue or pink clothes. And it was the dressing them in the clothes that made them the gender that you wanted, which I think is really messed up at some level. Um, one person, I love this. One person said, uh, they, their mom told them, that you only get a certain number of words in your lifetime. And after you use up all your words, well, just that's it. You can't talk anymore. Which I think is like A plus parenting. And I'm totally stealing that from, from this point on. For me as a kid, I, I thought, genuinely believed. You know how um, in public spaces, there will be a, a rubber bumper on the wall for the handle of the door. Right, so that the door doesn't smash into the tile or the wall or whatever. I genuinely believe when I, that when I was a kid that that was a button that you could press to directly contact 911. I don't know why I believed that to be true, but I wanted to find out one day. So we were in McDonald's and I was in the bathroom and I pressed the button and then I ran out of the bathroom as fast as I could. And I ate my supper and I was super scared because if all the emergency vehicles showed up, I would have to admit that I did it. And and then I'd get in super trouble. But that's, that. I genuinely believe that when I was a kid. That's how you contact 911. I saw later uh, when I was older that the way you call 911 is through your medic alert bracelet. When you fall and you can't get up. That's what I learned later on. But, um, but it's just funny to think about all the crazy stuff that we sincerely believe that just turns out to be significantly misguided, just not at all the way things are. And as I processed this series that we're beginning this morning, I realized that happens in our faith too. That it's possible to sincerely believe something about your life of faith, but to be significantly misguided in how you're living that out. And that's what we're going to explore in this series. If you haven't been with us, uh, we have been working through the life story of Jesus over the last couple of years as it was recorded and told by one of his best friends, a guy by the name of Matthew. And we've been going through the gospel according to Matthew. And we've been working our way through until like last fall in November, we started looking at the events of the last week of Jesus' life, his dramatic arrival in the city of Jerusalem when he visited it for the last time, um, his public protest in the temple where he was flipping over tables to, in protest of the corruption of the Jewish leadership and how we got then into these public debates and arguments with the Jewish 
religious leaders who were looking to discredit him. And instead, Jesus was exposing them as frauds in terms of spiritual leadership, exposing the emptiness of the spiritual leadership they were providing for the people of Israel. And then what we're looking at in this series, we arrive at Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. So you can turn to Matthew 23 in your Bible, whether that's on paper or in your phone or wherever. Um, All of this sort of public confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders in Israel comes to this head in this moment in Matthew chapter 23, which is what we're going to look at for this whole series. And it starts like this. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Jesus is kind of summarizing the situation for his disciples, for the crowds who had gathered around him. And he said, listen, when it comes to the Jewish religious leaders, to the Pharisees, you have to do everything that they say. Because, this is what he says, they sit in Moses' seat. What does that mean? Well, Moses was the prophet who brought the Jewish people, the religious law, who, was, who brought to them what it meant for them to live their lives faithfully in relationship with God. And he says, the, the Pharisees now, the Jewish religious leaders, they're the ones who are endowed with the authority of Moses to read the scriptures and to explain what the scriptures mean to the Jewish people. And Jesus says, so long as the Pharisees are explaining what the scriptures mean, you have to listen to everything they teach and do it. And yet Jesus says, when it comes to doing what the scriptures say, he says, do not do what they do because their lives are not a faithful representation of what it looks like to live faithfully in your relationship with God. Don't do it the way they do it because they're doing it in a way that's all kind of messed up as far as Jesus is concerned. So he says, listen, when it comes to the Jewish religious leaders, do what they say, but don't do what they do. It's very similar to the parenting arrangement I have with my kids. Uh, the similar kind of principle. But what Jesus is exposing is exactly what I was talking about. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, were very sincerely committed to understanding the Scriptures and to living it out, believing that they were being faithful in their relationship with God. And yet, Jesus says, it is possible to be sincerely committed to living out a life of faith and significantly misguided in how they're doing it. So he says, on the one hand, they understand the Scriptures and what it's about to a significant degree. But they're just completely messing it up when they go to live it out. And that's what this series is all about. This series called uh, Alternative Acts. It's about pointing out the ways in which we are sincerely committed to living lives of faith, and yet significantly misguided in the way that we live that out in our real life. In in a sense, the language I want to use in this series is Jesus is drawing the line between religion on the one hand 
which is the, all the ways that we mess it up, and devotion on the other hand, which is what Jesus is calling out of us. And so what we're going to be looking at in this series starting this morning are the marks of religion, of all the ways that we, we mess up what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and we're going to hear Jesus call us again and again and again to the alternative acts of devotion, to choosing to live our faith in a different way. And so here's the first one for this morning. Jesus would say the the first mark of religion that he addresses in this talk is that religion is motivated by a desire to impress other people. Religion is motivated by the approval of people. This is what he says about the Pharisees. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and at the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Jesus says, here's the problem with the way the religious leaders, you can't do do what they say, but don't do what they do because everything they do is motivated by a desire to be seen by other people, to have their religiousness recognized by other people. And so Jesus says, they make their phylacteries wide. What does that mean? Well, the phylacteries are, uh, this goes back to, I'll say it this way, it goes back to uh, a law uh, in the Moses, uh, one of Moses' laws in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting verse 6, where it says this. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. So Moses instructs the Jewish people to bind on their hand and on their forehead the commandments of the law. And so what the Jewish religious leaders did and what some Jews still do today, in fact, we have a a picture of it, what some Jews do today is they wear what are called phylacteries, um, these black leather boxes on their arm and on their forehead that contain the commandments of Scripture, at least the main commandments, the Ten Commandments and other main commandments like that. Um, And they wear them on their arm to indicate that everything they do with their strength is going to be in obedience to the commands of God. And they wear them on their foreheads to indicate that everything they think is going to be in obedience to the commands of God. But they wear, you know, these scriptures on their arm and on their foreheads. And and Jesus actually doesn't have any problem with this whatsoever. He doesn't mind people wearing phylacteries. His issue with the Pharisees is, he says they make their phylacteries wide. That it's not good enough for them that they would just, like everybody else, wear the boxes on their arm and on their forehead. Jesus says, no, 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 they have to wear extra large ones, right? So that everybody can see that you're carrying around more scriptures than they are. That you're more committed to obedience than they are. That you're essentially better at living your faith. You're just putting your faith on display. Jesus says, too, they wear their tassels long. This too comes out of a a command from the law of Moses. In Numbers 15, verse 37, it says this, The Lord says to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. And you will have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts 
and eyes. Again, you know, the Pharisees and Jews today, again, I have a picture of this, that would put tassels on their outer garments or on their prayer shawl. They put tassels on the fringes um, in order, again, for it to be a reminder of the commandments of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing this, right? My wife, Krista, used to do this. She used to, when, um, when a scripture became something that she wanted to think about and remember, she would write it out on paper and shove it in her pocket. So that every time she put her hand in her pocket, she would touch the paper and remember, oh yeah, this scripture that I want to remind myself of, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus says what's wrong is that everything they do, they do with the motivation to be seen. So they make their tassels extra long to demonstrate to everybody that they're more intentional about remembering the commands of God than everybody else is. They're just putting their faith on display so that other people can recognize their religiousness and respect them for it. They're motivated by the approval of others. Now, these are only a couple of examples. In other places in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about how the Pharisees will choreograph their day, their whole schedule for the day, so that when it comes time for prayer, you know, the the several times of public prayer throughout the day, at the moment of prayer, they would find themselves in the busiest part of the marketplace so that everybody could see and hear them pray. Jesus said when they gave alms to the poor, when they gave charitably to organizations, they would find ways to to do it publicly, to sort of broadcast their generosity for everyone to see. Jesus said when they were fasting, they would refuse to wash their face or or do their hair. Um, And then people would come up to them and say, dude, you look terrible. And they'd say, well, you see, I'm fasting. And it gave them an opportunity to broadcast their piety and to say, well, I'm just being spiritual right now. To be recognized for how spiritual they were. More spiritual than everybody else. Um, And the goal was that if everybody recognized your religiousness, then you would be respected. You'd be elevated above everybody else. Which is why Jesus says they, they love to be invited to the most important social occasions by the most important societal figures, and then be given the most important seats at the event. Just to have their importance recognized. Or, Jesus says, they love to be given the most important seats in the synagogue. Like Moses' seat. There was actually a a physical chair that was placed at the front of the synagogue because in the ancient world, it was called Moses' seat, because in the ancient world, all significant authoritative teaching by respected and revered teachers was done from the sitting position. Which tells you how much respect I deserve right now. Um, they, so they loved to sit in that seat. But even if they couldn't sit in that seat and be the one teaching, they loved to sit in the important seats which were all along the front so that everybody could see that they were sitting in the most important seats. It's funny how our conception of which seats are the most important changes over time because now we all believe it's way in the back that the most important people sit but um, Jesus said they love to be greeted with these formalized highly deferential greetings in the marketplace where people would gush over how much respect they have for them and kiss their ring and all this sort of stuff Jesus said they just love to be honored and respected and revered because they're 
significant religiousness had been recognized by everybody else. So they do everything to be seen. And the truth is we have our own ways of doing exactly the same thing. We may not wear our phylacteries wide. I only see small phylacteries in our community. I'm, I'm proud of you for that. Um, but we wear the Jesus fish on our car. Some of us wear Jesus t-shirts. Some of us post Jesus posts on our Facebook. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. Jesus is not concerned about the behavior. He's just asking questions about the motivation. Why? Why do we make the choices we make about how we make our faith public? Why is it that we Instagram our devotions and take a picture of our Bible and a cup of coffee as a way of saying to the world, hey, look, I'm reading my Bible today. What, what motivated you to do that? What motivated you to work into conversation how generous you were with that charity or how much you gave to this specific campaign or how many hours you've put into volunteering at one of our anchor causes? What, what motivates you to say those things? Right? That's the question. Um, in what ways do we live our faith in order to be seen by other people? So that we can be recognized for how spiritual and religious we are and earn other people's respect. And believe me, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. When I point, you know, at all of you, there are six fingers pointing back at me. I am literally the most seen person in this community. And don't think for a second that the temptation doesn't exist to choreograph my presence in the community to communicate a certain message about how I'm living my life of faith. Right? And it gets so messed up because even when we choose to not do those things, we can be still guided by the same motivations. I am so impressed, to be perfectly frank, I'm so impressed with people who will put their vulnerability and their weakness and their failures on Facebook and say, listen, I, a friend of mine did this this week. Um, I just had a terrible mom moment. And I'm so glad that Jesus has forgiven all of us and, and me for the ways that I mess up as a mom. I'm so Proud of people who buck the trend of trying to demonstrate how, trying to demonstrate how put together their faith is publicly. And yet I find for myself in this kind of environment when I share stories about my own weaknesses, I find that even that can tempt me to prove to you all by my vulnerability how humble I am. Look, I'm willing to share my weaknesses in public. Right? There are some of us who will say, well, this has nothing to do with me. I don't do those things. I don't broadcast my, I play it very low key. I don't even put my hands up in worship because I don't want to draw attention to myself. And the, here's the messed up thing. You can choose to not do things in your faith because you don't want the, res, the recognition and you're still being motivated by people's approval, the, by the same motivation. I'm not putting my hands up because I don't know what people will think of me. I, I'm reserved in worship because I don't know what people will think of me. I've had 
four to six people say to me over the last couple of months that there have been times in our services where they've wanted to yell out an amen or a yes or a thank you or a, you know, it's somehow in their exuberance over what God is doing in the service on a particular Sunday morning just to vocalize their agreement with that and their excitement about that. And all of them have said to me, but I didn't do it because I was afraid of what people would say. Right? So I'm just going to give you a moment right now to get all of your amens out of your system. Just go ahead, yell them to the screen. But <laughs> um, the, the point is, you see how messed up this is? That even when we try to do the opposite of broadcasting our faith and being out there for recognition, you can actually still be guided by the same deviant motivation, which is the approval of other people. And this is what Jesus says. The, the, the first mark of religion is that it's motivated primarily by the approval of others rather than the approval of God. And he says, listen, it's not supposed to be that way among those who follow Jesus. This is what he says in verse 8. He says, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers and sisters. And don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and mother, God, he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Jesus says, it's not supposed to be like that. You don't live your life this way. You don't publicly broadcast your faith, your religiousness, in order to be recognized and respected by others. That's not the way we roll. Those who follow Jesus make the opposite choice, which is to make themselves nothing in order that God gets all the recognition. This is what he means. He says, says, in the community... He says, nobody calls anybody rabbi. The word rabbi is Hebrew. It literally translated means my great one and is the title that I would prefer if anybody's going to call me anything, right? Uh, And for 20 years, I've been trying to get myself called rabbi and just people won't do it. There's somebody at Glenridge who calls me King Mike and that's about as good as it gets. Um, But rabbi was just a a generic title of respect. It was like our word sir. But it, over time, it became kind of a positional title, like Sir Elton John, who was somehow elevated above all of us. Um, and, and the Pharisees were eager to get in on the ground floor of getting called rabbi, of being set apart by everybody else, elevated in honor ahead of everybody else with this title. Jesus says, no, you don't do that in the community. You don't call each other father. That was a... That was a title of respect for, you know, the elderly or for your social superiors in ancient culture. But again, over time, it became the sort of formal title for Jewish religious teachers. In the the rabbinic commentaries on the law of Moses, there's a whole chapter called The Fathers. And it's just quotes from respected and revered rabbis is what they teach and think. It's a way of elevating some people ahead of others. Jesus says, you don't call each other instructor. Kind of sounds like lecturer. The word means more like guide or leader. Um, Maybe even mentor is a good translation. It's not about someone who teaches you something. It's about the person you have lined your life up behind. It literally translated, the word means the one who shows you the way. And it's about the way we give our our allegiance to another human being and say, this is the person who defines what my spirituality is like, right? They do that. 
uh, there were rabbis like Rabbi Shammai who started the school of Shammai and Rabbi Hillel who started the school of Hillel. And people would say, that's my leader. That's the person who describes the vision of spirituality that I just line up behind. And we still do it today. We do it with denominations. We do it with spiritual movements. People, I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Mennonite. This is the person who defines what spirituality looks like for me. And Jesus says, just stop it. Just stop it. We don't line up behind human leaders. We don't elevate one person ahead of everybody else. Actually, the apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that there be no divisions among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. He says, this is madness. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, no, don't follow me. Don't follow Peter. Don't follow Apollos. We all follow Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have role models. Paul is also the person who said, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm setting you an example of what it looks like. We have role models. Um, You know, there are people that we look to and we say, that person is living what I what I think is a vision of what Jesus' life ought to look like. But the second we start elevating them above everybody else, we've lost it. We've gone from devotion to Jesus in the way that we respect and emulate somebody else's followership to devotion to this person. Jesus says, we don't do that. We don't elevate One person, in fact, the hallmark of devotion, if the hallmark of religion is the approval of people, the hallmark of devotion is humility before God. He says, the reason you don't call anybody rabbi is you have a rabbi, it's Jesus. You don't call anybody father or mother because you have a heavenly father and mother and it's God. You don't call anybody leader, mentor, guide. You don't call anybody that because you have one of those. It's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The only one who gets elevated The only one who gets revered, the only one who gets lifted up above everybody else in the community is Jesus. That's it. Jesus alone. He says, all of the rest of you are brothers and sisters. All of the rest of you are equal. All of the rest of you are of equal honor, of equal esteem, deserve to be respected equally, revered equally, treated equally, of equal dignity, equal status, equal standing in the community. There's nobody above and there's nobody below. You are all equal in value, equal in love, equal in acceptance, equal in respect. You're different in the role that you play. You're different in your personality. You're different in what you offer to the community. But there is no one in the community who is worth any more than anybody else. And the second we start lifting other people up, or the second we start hoping that people will lift us up above everybody else, that they'll start recognizing and respecting our religiousness, we're off the trail and we're off on religion instead of devotion to Jesus Christ. Period. There's only one that gets lifted, and it's Jesus, and everybody else is on an equal level playing field, equally accepted, dignified, respected, and loved. In fact, actually, Jesus goes further than that. It's not even that you're all equal. In a life of sincere devotion to Christ, everybody else is more equal than you. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus will say, if you really want to be great in the community, be nobody. 
He says, it's not even that you're the same as everybody else. The ones who really get it are the ones who treat everyone else as greater than themselves. The ones who consider everyone else to be more important than them. The ones who consider everybody else's needs to be greater than their own needs. The ones who are looking to serve other people's interests rather than having other people serve their interests. Jesus says, your significance in the kingdom is directly proportional to the position of insignificance you take in the community. The lower you make yourself, the greater you are in God's eyes. And not in some sort of false modesty, false humility, aw shucks kind of way. No, you're better at that than me. No, 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 no. And certainly not in some sort of shame-filled way. I'm nothing. Everybody else is great. I don't even deserve to be here. Garbage. We're all loved, accepted, respected, and dignified exactly the same way in the community. We all belong to the exact same degree. It's just, I'm going to choose to use my place in the community to put myself beneath everybody else and to serve everybody else in the spirit of love, of the love of Christ. I am going to, the way you become someone in the community is to make yourself nobody. That's how you be a somebody. And you don't do it for recognition. You don't do it to be thanked. You don't do it for honor. In fact, uh, Jesus says it's, it's God who will reward you for your service. Right? So here's how you know that you've chosen a life of religion rather than a life of devotion to Christ. Have you ever had the thought after you've done something for somebody else, man, they didn't even say thank you. That's religion. You're doing it to be recognized by somebody else. Have you ever had the thought, geez, it's not fair that nobody ever asks me to fill this role or to play this part or to, to do, get, offer this kind of leadership? How come nobody asks me to do that? That's religion, not devotion. You're doing it for the recognition of other people. Have you ever had the thought, nobody even noticed how hard I worked on this? Nobody even knew that it was me. Nobody complimented me on all the work that I did for that. That's religion and not devotion. You're doing it for the recognition of other people. And to be honest, it's false. It's not even a true statement because it's not that nobody noticed. God noticed. And if you did it in the spirit of just humbly and sincerely wanting to serve everybody else because you esteemed everybody else to be more significant than you and you wanted nothing out of it, no recognition, no gratitude, no payback, no reward, no nothing. You just did it because you wanted to serve Christ by serving people. He noticed and he'll reward you for that. Jesus says, this this is Jesus' point. Here's how you tell the difference between religion and devotion to Christ. Religion is motivated by a desire to have your religiousness recognized so that you can be increased in your respect in other people's eyes. Religion is motivated by the approval of other people. Here's how you tell you're living a life of devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ is motivated by a desire to serve Christ by serving people in ways that nobody will ever notice without ever wanting a gratitude, recognition, or reward, um, doing it out of the humble, sincere desire and conviction that everybody else and their needs are more important than yours. Trusting that if you have needs, that somebody's going to be believing that and taking care of you. 
Jesus says, those who are living the life of religion are trying to be seen as somebody because of how religious they are. The real somebodies are those who are choosing to be nobody because of how humble they are in Christ. Now let's be honest. You can't do that and neither can I. That's why Jesus died. We said three weeks ago that the cross of Christ was about two things. It's about forgiving us for the ways that we make it all about ourselves, right? Like the difference between religion and devotion is who you're putting at the center of the story. In a life of religion, you're the center of your own story. In a life of devotion to Christ, he's the center of the story. The cross of Christ is about forgiving us for all the ways that we make it about ourselves and breaking the power of sin in our lives to fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit, to set us free to be the people God has created us to be. So let's pray to Christ in humility that he'd forgive us for the ways that we've made it about religion and ask him to fill us with the strength of the Spirit to make it about living a life of devotion to Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, I make it about me all the time in ways and in depths I don't even recognize. I confess that to you. I'm not alone in that. Father, as we move into this moment now, where as a community we get the chance just to reflect on our own place where we are, I pray that you would invite all of us into the spirit of owning and confessing the ways that we've made uh, our faith about religion, but wanting to living for the approval of others, making it about ourselves rather than living in devotion to Christ. Would you fill us with your spirit to become the thing that you want us to be, to become the somebodies you envisioned by making ourselves nobody in humility to because we want to serve you by serving those you've put in our lives. Would you do that in us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.